Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This is the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. And this is, I, I mean, in a lot of, in a lot of, places that's their big show of the year we don't really think of it this way weirdly rebecca it's our favorite books of 2022 mm-hmm. i don't know what our big show of the year is but um because we're just two people uh <laughs> it's not like the new york times or something like that where we have a copious staff and a highly produced interactive widget or anything it's just our favorite books of the year uh for 2022 i guess um we haven't talked about organization, how many we're picking. I'm going to use my heuristic where I get to pick one out of every 10 books I've read. So okay. I've got 14 at okay. this point. I don't know how many you have. B- before we get started, we'll do a sponsor break. Um, good year in reading. The New York Times book, 10 best books of the list came out. And you were very charitable to text me and make me feel better about my existential crisis. Because <laughs> I have read four of those 10. <laughs> and I guess my question to you is... Now, as, as, as Project Front List winds down, is four out of ten a good showing for me in this project or not? What, you, you seem yeah. to want to, like, attaboy me, and I, I don't <laughs> know if that was just to make me feel better or if that was genuine, a little bit of both. Look, I'll take the attaboy. Don't, don't get me wrong. But, like, I don't know. I'm trying to figure out if I, w- I should have thought of an over-under at the beginning. Um, oh, that's interesting. I don't know. I guess I feel two kinds of way. But what do you think as a neutral party you know, here? Yeah, I think four out of 10 is pretty good. And I will admit that's coming from my own reading perspective of like most years, I read a lot of front list. So yeah. it kind of felt like you were coming into my clubhouse and we got to hang out in that space yes. together this year. And most years, if I hit somewhere between three and six mm-hmm. of the 10 on the New York Times top 10, I feel pretty good about it. Like there are thousands of new books oh, every year and hundreds probably that I would have enjoyed and found worthy of being on my top list if I had read them, that it's it's nice to like be reminded of that. I'm never going to hit all 10, probably. It would no. just be a weird, that's just, just such a weird coincidence. It would be unlikely to happen. But yeah, I think four is pretty good. Like a good, I think you took a really good sampling of the new books that were out this year. The New York Times employs many more people than the two of us <laughs> to read true. and review books. Yeah. So they can take a much broader survey of what's out there than we can. And yeah, I, I feel pretty good about that. I, it was a genuine attaboy of a like, look, you you didn't miss the mark just because no. the National Book Award had a weird shortlist. You're weird. I'm not weird. You're <laughs> weird. You're weird. Yeah. And it. I, I always like this show. I agree that this is not our like big, big show of the year. Um, but I, I like that it's faves instead of best. Like we're not trying to confer some big award upon these. And some mm. of these I, I do think are among the best books of the year, but coming yeah. to it from favorites and that you know, favorite reading experience um, is a nice framework for me. I had 14 on my long list. Um, I'm going to hit about 75 or 80 books this year. So if I do 14, it'll be, you know, 20% of my list. I've had a really strong hit rate um, this year. So I feel really good about that. I don't know that I need to name all 14 of them. Uh, Some of them I'm sure we're going to have overlap on. So I might just, you know, piggyback when you hit those, but there were, there were probably, there's definitely eight that I would be like, yes, this is a reading experience. I'm still thinking about it was definitely a favorite and 14 that were strong enough that I would want to recommend them, I guess is where I'm going to leave it. We'll get to a sponsor here in a minute and we'll get into some more of our framing devices for, for our list. <laughs> uh, one other follow-up thing. I don't want to let it go till we do our next new show, which will be sometime in March of 2023, according to our <laughs> No, it's going to be a little while. A lot of feedback about the mystery 2.5 million print run book. Mm-hmm. I think a couple of readers who did a little more metadata searching than I did, um, I think they've got it right, which is this is going to be a Colleen Hoover title. Yes. And the thing that threw me off, frankly, was the hardback. And she doesn't release in hardback um, initially. That's the... the the rise of the trade paperback in middle grade all the way up through adult, I think largely led by the TikTok backlist phenomenon, mm-hmm. um, had me a little 
confused, and I'm not even sure that it will be hardback, frankly. I wonder if that's another thing they're saying hardback because they can use it to do dissembling about what the title actually is. But I, I think this... There, we're not taking any more bets on this. I, I'm pretty sure it's going to be Colleen Hoover. Some people are like yeah. Donna Tart, and the Goldfinch sold you. pretty well. Some people are like it sold 3.2. I was like, it may have done that. A, it's a different world. B, that's not in the initial print run. They didn't right. print three million. That, that one, that book sold in hardcover for what two and a half years, Rebecca. Like that was yeah. a genuine phenomenon. It, it was, yeah. I think the thing that I said to folks on Patreon who were theorizing that it was going to be Donna Tart is like, I want to live in the world where yes. Donna Tart is a big enough deal to have a two and a half million first print run. Um, and I think I agree that we got tripped up on the hardback because that night that we were texting, trying to figure out like, what is going on? What is this mystery book? Um, I tossed out, it could be Colleen Hoover. Right. And then we talked ourselves out of it with like, well, it doesn't fit the profile. It's a hardback. Like she's not mm. going to sell that many. And uh, it ends with us this year. But this is the follow on. The theory is this is like the follow on to Verity. And Verity yeah. was a huge, huge deal. I think bigger than we can grasp. And that, the email from the listener I do suspect is is right. So the most obvious answer turns out to have probably been the answer, I guess. And the one and the one <laughs> theoretical one, like what if it were imprint agnostic and you were just you were just trying to like who's got their hat in the rings that could do a print run like mm-hmm. this? Someone brought up, or maybe I brought it. It was brought up after our initial wave, and I think after we recorded uh, George R. R. Martin. Yeah. Now again, t- tough look for George that we didn't even think of him, but frankly. He hasn't released a book in 12 years, so it's not top of mind right, uh, right now. It, yeah, and but, also they're not but, like, oh, sorry, they're, I was saying, they're not like sliding in a George R.R. R. Martin book for so. four months from now with yeah. a cover to be revealed thing. Like the release date for that thing is going to be announced bajillions of years in advance with much fanfare and many pre-orders. Right. Well, but I guess the, uh, my thinking was, were it to become, would it get a two and a half million print? Oh, the next, yeah. And I think it probably would. I, I don't know what our appetite for this. Like like we've said before, we're in the weirdest spot ever for uh, an IP situation yeah. with George. And the distaste, it seems like most fans had for the end of the TV show, I think have, have only certain to heighten the interest in the books. Like what was George going to zag um, <laughs> from the zig, even though apparently he mm-hmm. was or was not involved in this? It's all very unclear. What's that fan base is doing? I don't know. We don't have, um, we don't have a while the show was live really example of what that appetite is going to be. I could certainly believe it's going to sell two and a half million copies in in hardback. But again, that's a. I think it's a penguin. Maybe I can't remember which. It's which one of the fantasy titles. Uh, one of the fantasy imprints. Maybe it's just double. It doesn't matter. But that's the only other one we could think mm-hmm. of that maybe would be in the ballpark. But right now, our Bayesian prior is if there's a huge book um, coming out with a huge print run, it's a Colleen Hoover title. And that's the world we're going to be living in until yep. proven otherwise. So uh, let's do a sponsor and then we'll get into their favorite books of the year. Today's episode is brought to you by Random House, publishers of The Book of Love by Kelly Link. So The Book of Love is a long-awaited debut novel from a Pulitzer Prize finalist, a MacArthur Genius Grant recipient, and the author of some amazing short story collections. It follows Laura, Daniel, and Moe, who one night find themselves in a high school classroom, which is not too special because they are teenagers, but get this, it happens almost a year after they disappeared and were presumed dead. And with them is their unremarkable music teacher who seems to know something about their disappearance and what brought them back. So desperate to reclaim their lives, the three agree to the terms their music teacher proposes. They will be given a series of magical tasks. While they undertake them, they may return to their families, but they can tell no one where they've been. But when other supernatural forces descend on their town, the stakes get even higher. Make sure to check out the new book. And thanks again to Random House, publishers of The Book of Love by Kelly Link for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Daughter of the Bone Forest by Jasmine Skye. Bone familiar Rosie spends most of her days in the Bone Forest, hiding her powers to avoid conscription by the Witch King's army. But when she saves the life of Princess Shaw, she's offered the chance to attend the prestigious school, Witch Hall. And at Witch Hall, Rosie finds herself embroiled in political games she doesn't understand. Shaw wants Rosie as a partner to help lead the coming war. Meanwhile, all Rosie wants is to stay out of trouble. 
but she can't really deny her attraction to Shaw. So the question is, will Rosie give in to her destiny or will the Bone Forest call her home once and for all? Daughter of the Bone Forest by Jasmine Skye is for all the magic school lovers. This immersive magic school is full of witches and familiars. It's also a queer normative fantasy world with a sapphic slow burn romance like we love. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Daughter of the Bone Forest by Jasmine Skye for sponsoring this episode. Favorite best... I don't know how to do this. I try, I'm trying to scratch multiple itches with my list. Um, I realize if, the, if slight different, I know it's going to shock you, that slightly different <laughs> word choice would have slightly different lists. Um, one list that occurred to me that would be fun to do at some point and maybe in a future year or some other iteration, like the books that made me happiest while reading them is oh. not this list, weirdly, <laughs> because I am messed up and not a well person, I guess, to some degree. But these are the bo- the way I'm thinking about these. These are my favorite books of the year, sort of. But they're the books I'm most glad to have experienced. I think mm. is that's the one that's easiest for me to understand because then you then you can you can account for the Schindler's List problem, and you know what I'm talking about here, right? Yes. Which is Schindler's is a great movie, tough hang, and that doesn't mean it's your favorite. Is it your favorite? Is it the best? Or or how glad are you to have had the Schindler's List experience? I think that completely reframes the question and, and feels a little bit like a lawyer's trick to get out of some difficult decisions, <laughs> but I will take getting off on a technicality at this point. I Rebecca. support that technicality. That's pretty close to the way that I think about what my favorites are in any given year. Like what were the most maybe valuable or important reading experiences, mm-hmm. the stuff, the books that I'm taking something with me into you know the rest of my life because um, i've had great fun reading experiences stuff i was really happy to be reading at the time but then you close the book and never think about it again yeah and that's its own i think important kind of reading experience right. that's like really what i'm trying to do on vacation or on a plane <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know those are meaningful in their own right but most of those kinds of book experiences are not the things that are going to for me show up on an end of the year list where i'm recapping like what was a meaningful experience similar to you what what am i really glad that i spent time with this year yeah all right well let's just trade back and forth and if one of us has a shared title we can spend a moment on mine aren't any order are yours no that i I need to sleep at some point i like i can't worry (laughs) about this this much Um, so where would you like to begin? Yeah, I thought maybe we could just take a couple shared faves off the board just to start the stuff we've talked about a lot over the course of the year. And that's my trio of the nineties by Klosterman, how to be perfect by Michael Shore and heartbreak by Florence Williams. I have all three of those on my list. Um, interestingly, four of my 14, I had read by like February 8th Mm -hmm. (laughs) and because those, those came hot out of the gate. Heartbreak was a February release. I think 90s was a January release. And it was early per- in the year, yeah. yeah. Um, I had all four of those. Lot and, and for me, you didn't do... Did you do any of those on audio? Uh, how do I did How to Be Perfect because you had got it... You got yes. to it a little bit before I did. Yeah. And I had like... I think I had started the digital galley and you mm. were like, dude, the ebook or the audio book. <laughs> Get on that. And I think so all I, three I of them would make my list yeah. of my five favorite audio books of yeah. the year And Heartbreak, well. yes, on audio Heartbreak, sure. it, I mean, it's absolute the right. That's... It was amazing that. on It's audio. amazing on audio. I'm not sure what else to say about these. Um, I, I think these are... I'm not sure what to say about these, and here's a bunch of stuff to say. That's that's the Jeff O'Neill way. Um, they are the kind of mix we like of personal, intellectual, emotional, and casual, informally serious kind of mm-hmm. mix at the same time. Heartbreak probably has the most serious subject matter in it, but dealt with a real human if not self-deprecating, at least self-aware approach. And I think that's something all three of these books are. They're taking on heady material and it can, it could be patronizing, condescending, or otherwise off-putting to deal with an entire decade or, you know, one of the parts of the human condition or just, you know, how to be the perfect person. You need a little if not a wink, a little shrug and a maybe and a check this out and I'm trying to figure this out. And I'm not sure that's something 10 years ago you had a lot of when dealing with these topics. 
I agree. I think they feel really inviting. Mm -hmm. Like all three authors are like, hey, come on in and let's do this together. And that approach of, I guess, to borrow language from some of the other communities that I see, that approach of like co-creating with the reader what's Mm -hmm. going on, I, I find to be just really fun it's a great like fun in a meaningful way of let's learn some stuff let's like get in there and we could use the Brene Brown like let's rumble through (laughs) some of the stuff about being human I do not love that verb but I think it kind of works here Florence Williams inviting us into her moment of heartbreak and saying I know you felt something like this in your life too or that you're going to and so let's talk about it and Michael Shore being like everybody goes through weird dilemmas about what's the right thing to do here and he shares his own you know foibles and mistakes and the stuff that prompted him to be interested in moral philosophy in the first place and then Klosterman being like we a bunch of us lived through the 90s and here's how we understood it at the time but here's what it looks like with some perspective I really wish I had listened to the 90s on audio and then I kind of double wish that the folks at Pushkin had gotten a hold of it so that it could have been an audio experience with like you know, excerpts of like Ross Perot giving his lectures on late night TV and, you know, examples from his graphs and then some audio of like 90s boy bands and the other sorts of stuff that Klosterman talks about and movie clips. Like it it feels like it could have really yes. been a sort of multi-dimensional audio experience. And I don't, maybe there will, I doubt it'll happen, but like it's a I'm right a nightmare, apparently. I mean, even right. it, it just is just to get 90 seconds of, yeah, you know, smells like teen spirit it's really hard to do without paying a jillion dollars right i wonder about like if it had been a pot like a year-long podcast about the history of the 90s that where spotify could have just you know given them the music at least that's right um, that that would would have been way to do it it would have been super interesting but I, i i really was glad for all three of those reading experiences for that i like your language there kind of casually informative Mm -hmm. and uh closerman and sure i think those topics especially could have trended way too academic there's a way of doing cultural history that's pretty dry there's definitely a way of doing moral philosophy (laughs) that's really dry and the thing that made how to be perfect so good was that it was just so far from dry it wasn't somebody coming down from an ivory tower it was somebody who's like in the mix with normal people every day and Um, and i think in this moment too there's and i think both sure and closerman are aware of it there's a white guy telling you how things are possibility (laughs) that you need to figure out your way around if you want to Mm -hmm. write about these topics which i think they both did pretty well and closterman um the way closterman did is like He's trying to capture, in a way, his own experience, trying to remember what it was like at the same time we were writing about it. I'm not sure there's a greater expert on 90s pop culture than Chuck Klosterman, yeah. honestly. And he still came with it with a very, I think, more, trends more sort of personally cerebral than the others. But he's mm-hmm. like, I'm trying to figure this out. And like that I'm trying to figure this out vibe, I think, is essential in, in these totally. kinds of pop mainstream titles. Um, it's not, you know, some, there are real experts and they should tell us how to do things and how things are. But in these particular cases, the, I'm trying to figure this out, come along with me is the best way to get us onto your roller coaster. Um, yeah. It's so approachable. I guess I will maybe try to RSTLNE some of our shared favorites. Speaking of people who know things and just tell them how they are, I assume Song of the Cell of made course. it onto your list. Um <laughs> Mukherjee doesn't need to perform for me the I'm just trying to figure this no. out. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, he knows things and he's here to tell us. Uh, we've talked about this recently um, at length. I'm not sure what else there is to say about it. I guess I guess the only thing I would say in a meta point of view, I'm not seeing it as on as many lists as I was expecting um, mm. for, for best books, best nonfiction. I don't know why that is. Maybe it's a little too... Sci- it gets pretty sciencey, I guess, as Mukherjee does. Um, but I think he does a good job of holding your hand all the way to the down to the Petri dish. But maybe it's not the same as some of the political or um, cultural stuff that tends to me... Or, or, I don't know, softer science kinds of things that tend to make the list. I mean, just look at the New York Times yeah. Best Books of the Year. Like The nonfiction is... Ed Yong made that list. It's not quite as sciencey as Song of the Cell. No, sh- now sh- no shouts to Ed, but Song of the Cell is a little more in the lab, and I like that. Um, but I don't know why. It's clearly to me my favorite science book of the year, and I've read a few. I've not read the whole um, corpus, but 
Song of the Cell, Rebecca. Anything else to say there? Yeah, I have Song of the Cell on my list. I didn't have Immense World on my faves of the year, um, which just, I guess, differences of opinion there Mm -hmm. between us and the New York Times. I do think Song of the Cell was wonkier than Emperor of All Maladies and the Gene. um, Like, the genes, I thought, felt skewed a little more sciencey than Emperor of All Maladies. But like, there's such a big narrative to Emperor of All Maladies, and everyone can relate to the story of cancer in some way. It's a, it's more work to read about, you know, genetics or to read about cellular biology, and the details are, I think, more challenging. I definitely felt like I was working more for Song of the Cell, yeah. and both I both wanted the experience to last a while, so I was reading like a chapter a day or like 20 pages a day for a while, but also I needed that time to really digest the information. Um, it's the, I feel like Mukherjee is a masterful teacher, yeah. and I love to be in his classroom. I'm there for whatever he wants to write about. Song of the Cell, I think, is a all of his books, but this one is a really just masterful approach to science and the story around science, both what we know and how we came to know it. And I think he really grasps in a way that a lot of science writers don't that the how we came to know it is the really interesting human part of the story. That's That's the story. Who were these people? What were they doing? How did they get these ideas? How did they make these discoveries? What mistakes did they make along the way? Once they figured the thing out, how did it land? Like, if you put the three books together, there are just dozens of stories in them about people who figured out something major, and it either didn't land, or it caused like a huge ruckus in the scientific community, or they have like (laughs) ongoing feuds with other scientists, and somebody gets vindicated 25 years later when someone else confirms that that was the thing all along when everyone had been doubting the first guy Mm -hmm. who figured it out. And that human stuff of how science gets made, I just find to be so compelling. And I feel like Mukherjee has latched onto a really unique way of getting into this difficult subject matter by telling the human stories around it that I would love for more science writers to do. If there's one thing Mukherjee likes better than the beauty of nature, it's the beauty of someone taking a microscope and putting it somewhere someone hadn't put it before and being like, whoa, there's a whole world in ocean water. Look at all this junk (laughs) floating around in here. And he builds his own microscope after he's taught and he's written his 3,000 words. Then he builds his own microscope Mm -hmm. because apparently he's... Robert Downey Jr. crossed with uh, Mary Curie, and that's cool, and not at all threatening, and everything's fine. Uh, He might be the most interesting man in the world. Yeah. Uh, The only slag I have on Mukherjee, and it's a very, very slight one, and this would really be like to Voltron into the perfect writer, if he was like 9% funnier, Mm -hmm. that would be the only thing I would take. Because some of it's kind of silly. Not silly, but like it's weird and abstract and... That's not his vibe. And if I have to trade that for him being like, I'm also going to talk about Ishiguro in this chapter, I will trade that. But if he could do also a little bit of, a little more humor for it, then it would be kind of the ultimate um, pop science nonfiction title. Yes. Uh, That was the only piece, I think. That's not in the in the full orchestra right now. But you could leave you could leave the timpani out. It's okay. Yeah, still he gets enjoy the sonata he the, gets some good wordplay in Song of yes. the Cell, and it's he been does. too long since the Gene and Emperor of All Maladies. I don't remember if he does that in those, but there there are some good moments where you can tell like he's proud of himself for yes. this little clever. <laughs> turn it's called of Song of the Cell for God's sakes, <laughs> right? <laughs> and some of them are really are are pretty funny, but I also would have taken like a little more humor, or like I think there's spaces to like have issued a little funny commentary about mm-hmm. like really how ridiculous some of these feuds between these scientists are, especially like in the 1700s where the feud happens in letters that take four weeks to get to each other. Like the the footnotes are ripe with yes. places that, that he could have gone with that. I think that transitions me to another, I know, shared mm. love, definitely a shared favorite of mine this year. I think Ross Gay yeah, does the too. self-aware, really thoughtful inviting contemplation funny thing super well and my i think a lot of my favorites were clustered at the beginning and the end of the year and the day that song of the cell and inciting joy came out was like the day of my year Um, (laughs) (laughs) but inciting joy probably in my top three for the year if i really had to like if you really really pushed me Mm -hmm. just i just like thinking with ross gay and i like the way that he sort of pushes ideas into what Steven Johnson would call the adjacent possible, where like, I might not have found that next space to walk into from the room he's in with whatever it is he's thinking about. And that 
pulling in of all kinds of ideas. Like he's talking about community, he's talking about art, then he's talking about pickup basketball, and then he's talking about building a garden, and that they're all happening in one essay. Um, that sort of like that, that fullness of a really broad and deep interest in the world, and that he lets all those elements come into play. I think Ruskay has this really beautiful way of like, taking all of the things that he thinks about and all the things he's interested in, even the fun, silly ones, seriously. Mm-hmm. And there's something really compelling to me about that. Yeah, it's it's on my list for sure. Um, I'm not sure it raised quite to those heights. And some of this is just idiosyncratic bias against collections. Like, I, mm. the, to reach the peak for me, I want the whole work to be about one thing, to be, to be an integrated whole. And this is sort of, I mean, it's... It is and it isn't. Like, I'm not sure how well the inciting joy heuristic works to describe all the essays there. It also doesn't matter. But what I'm comparing to something like Song of the Cell, right? Like, Mm -hmm. there's a little more ambition in something like this, but it absolutely makes my top 14. Yeah, mine was bookended. My year was very much bookended. And I don't know why that would be, but none of my picks come from May, June, or July, which is weird Uh because you would think... Now, a lot of wonderful books I read, and maybe we'll do some also rands and, and honorable mentions. I had a real h- hard time with my like 14, 15, 16, um, but Inciting Joy was not one of the hard mm. uh, decisions to make. I would read a Roske book every year, and I would read a Siddhartha Mukherjee yep. uh, book every year. Very happily. Yeah. Um, I think maybe next I will go with a trio of books that I'm going to kind of group together because I've talked about them before, but I think also you will not have any three of them, though maybe okay. you, we will. Um, I talked about them before, but my commercial lit fic troika, my three-headed hydra of To Paradise, Candy House, and Sea of Tranquility, all made Mm. my top 14. Um, And looking at this, the only one that was maybe I was wobbly on a little bit in the last month or so was Sea of Tranquility, though I looked at it again and I picked it up and kind of just spent a few minutes... That book is damn good, Rebecca. I mean, it is a really good, <laughs> polished book. And I, I was almost, I think I was too hard on it. Or, again, it's in my top 14, so I'm not being that hard. But it, in looking at, in comp- cross-comparing and what I've said about and what I've thought about it, I think I'm d- dimming it, dinging it for perfection, which sounds dumb. Oh, That's not what I really mean. But like, it is so well executed. It almost feels, I, I think, here's what it is. Emily St. John Mandel is making a feeling too, it felt too easy. And then looking at it again, it's like, that's not easy. That's the, that's the, that's the <laughs> hardest thing in the world to do, to make something that complicated look easy. So that made it up there. To Paradise did not look easy, and it's hard. And I'm not sure in the end it holds together. But as I've told you, and I've said on the show before, that one has stuck with me. Um, yeah. And, there, and then Candy House... I, I said this when we recorded our episode about it. I think it would grow, and it certainly has. I think it's held up extremely well. And when I put it in head-to-head with other lit fic that I've read this year, I Candy House will just keep knocking them out. Um, and so those are the three. My, my three, you know, at the beginning of the year, I could have told you these are three that will probably make my list. And it turns out good people are good at writing. Yeah, and they did. It. They they did it. Congratulations <laughs> to all three of them. Yeah, I don't have to paradise right after this. We're recording for Patreon the books we missed this yes. year, and that's at the top of my list of the books I missed this year. Um, but I did have Candy House in oh, okay. my in my top eight. If I had had to just do the top really? eight, really? Well, that's that a one, real turnaround for you. It is. Speak on it, it has. Well, it's it did what you said it would do. It has grown. I think it was complicated and interesting and. The experience of reading it itself left me in that kind of like, it was warmer than lukewarm, but I wasn't, when we yeah. talked about it, I wasn't in the space of like, this is a great book. I'm super glad to have read. I was glad to have read it, but I didn't walk away like this is going to be one of my favorites of the year. But I continue to think about it. I continue to like recommend it to people mm-hmm. when ideas that are related to it come up. She did something really difficult and ambitious in that book, and she plays with form in a way that I find to be really interesting. I think she's just a really brave writer and is willing to try stuff that is weird and that isn't going to land with people. Like, you're coming off of – it's been 10 years, but she's coming off of – Goon Squad, which was huge and is going to have an adaptation. She was in between. She had one in between. Oh, that's right. Pretty well, Um, but anyway. 
And she could have, you can go all kinds of directions there. And I think often writers who have that kind of success either are just interested in going somewhere that's more commercial and broadly appealing, or they are kind of guided into something that's more commercial and broadly appealing because you can make yourself more money that way. You can make Mm -hmm. your agent or your publisher more money that way. And I really admire Jennifer Egan's commitment to just keeping it weird. Like, I'm going to stay, you know, I'm going to stay here in my weird zone where chapters do all kinds of things and you don't know what's happening. She really, really trusts readers to figure out the weird stuff. And I value that so much as a reader when an author is like, here's a weird thing. Here's a chapter in a format you've never seen before. Is this person a cyborg or on some kind of like spy mission? I don't know. Will you it know It doesn't end? matter. <laughs> right. Yeah. You yeah. might not even know at the end. Uh-huh. And that's going to end up being fine. Uh, that she just is willing to go there in a way that is I just think admirable and cool. Um, and I would like more writers to be emboldened to do that. Yeah. I th- and I think she did it really successfully. So it has, yeah, it has grown in my estimation. I kept my hardcover copy. And I think I'm going to look back on that as something that I have really valued as a reading experience. And you're, it's interesting you mentioned recommending it because it's so on its own, that it's kind of an interesting recommendation for people because they might be looking for something strange. And since it is essentially short stories, you can hear in my voice that doesn't Mm -hmm. quite capture, but it basically is that there's something there for everybody. And if if there's one you don't particularly like, it'll be over soon. And there'll be another (laughs) one that you like coming pretty quick. And I think one of the reasons I I read Sea of Tranquility and Kindy House almost back to back, I was listening to something else on audio in between. And I think Sea of Tranquility, my estimation of it was impoverished by my admiration and Mm. the dopamine firing from trying to make sense (laughs) of Candy House. Whereas Sea of Tranquility, you don't really have to make sense of it in the end. Like you, you, she's going to pull you along and it's going to be wrapped up pretty nicely by the end of Sea of Tranquility, no spoilers. Whereas Candy House is not that way. Mm -hmm. (laughs) If anything, your brain is an exposed um, nervous system uh, that has to deal with, you know, ambiguity and ambiguity and also a kind of like open-endedness yes. um, that is not as satisfying, conventionally satisfying as something like seeing tranquility. Mm-hmm. And you, Rebecca, you and I are both like this, and I think our listeners don't. <laughs> Given the choice between an interesting mess and a beautiful polished stone, we generally will be attracted to the interesting mess. But that doesn't mean we also don't like, you know, a pearl. And I think mm-hmm. Sea of Tranquility is more of a pearl. Yeah, Sea of Tranquility... I went like back and forth. And so I think it's 14 on my top 14. (laughs) Um, And probably for the same reasons or many of the same reasons that you just cited. And I don't know, for me, maybe too, it suffered from proximity to station to coming off the station 11 Uh, adaptation. I thought about that. Yeah. That was like such a big, soaring and expansive emotional experience watching that show and i i've been toying with going back and watching it again Mm -hmm. over the holidays this year just to see because there was something about like the time of life that we were in when station 11 was airing and the sort of starting to come out of covid and starting to come back to life and really living in that survival is not sufficient space but wanting more connection and beauty and art and all of those things that i wonder what it would be like to revisit that material now say sea of tranquility is like it's so polished and well done and you get the answers kind of at the end it's so much quieter yeah and I think the combined dopamine hit of Candy House and there's just the big feelings of Station Eleven that Sea of Tranquility was just so quiet. I really enjoyed the reading experience. I haven't found myself thinking a lot about Sea of Tranquility since then, um, which I think is why it's at the bottom of my top 14. But I don't know. Ask me in five years. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It It might be higher. Well, you know, there's another way of looking at these two, especially writers that have several books or have a profile of some kind. Does their most latest book burnish or detract from their corpus? Mm. And it certainly burnishes. Like yes. Sea of Tranquility is top three Mandel, I think, at this point. I agree. Um, so I'm not sure. I went and then you followed up. So why don't you take me someplace else you haven't gotten? Sure. Um, this one I don't think is going to be on your list. Right. Probably my favorite memoir. Well, 
one of my two favorite memoirs of the year, but In the Shadow of the Mountain by Sylvia yeah, Vasquez Lovato. This, this is on my, I didn't get to. Yeah, this. which I read pretty early in the year. It's her memoir of being um, one of the first women to summit all of the seven sisters. I know last week, maybe on one of the recommendations shows, you were talking about Nims Die Perja and his uh, yeah. book and documentary about climbing some of those same peaks. This is kind of sneakily, not just an adventure memoir, but a recovery story. Um, she was the victim of sexual assault as a child and, a, and as a young woman and then became a, a drug and alcohol addict sort of in an attempt to cope with those things and also has a really successful career while she's battling addiction but hits that breaking point and discovers for herself that really physically challenging experiences dial her into her life in a way that nothing else has and those become the way that she copes with you know getting sober and staying sober and also processing the trauma of her early life. And it, it's just, it's thoughtful. It's funny. Um, she's just really just so honest about her experience. And I thought it was structured really well that the chapters moved back and forth between her present day, the present day of the story, which is trying to summit Everest and the past of both her childhood, young adult life, building her career. And then uh, ultimately those threads meet near the end, uh, where we, she gets up to the present day, but structured really well. Um, just really, I thought just very grounded and also did some interesting uh, near the end, like pulling in of the pretty new science that we have around uh, how nature and outdoor activity, in addition to just general physical activity can be an important part of healing from trauma. There's a moment where like, she does work with the same group that um, Florence Williams goes to do some work with in Harvard break. <laughs> and I read those in close proximity also. So it was just kind of a cool overlap. But she's a person that I want to hear more from. Um, there's going to be an adaptation and Selena Gomez is going to be playing her. So I'm excited to watch that at some point. But I would like to just continue following her life and the way that she talks about it. And I think aside from the fact that she has pretty graphic descriptions of the abuse that she suffered on the page, the book is relatively widely recommendable because she's taking these experiences that many humans have and then taking them out into an adventure memoir and doing, you know, a big experience that very few people have to, as a way to cope with an unfortunately very common experience that I think if you know if you know the person that you're talking to yeah. and what they can read and can't read, this is, I think, pretty widely recommendable. And one that just as I've like looked back over, what have I read so far this year at different points? I've always been glad to see that one on the list. Selena Gomez tr going to try to pull a wild maker. I mean, yeah. that's an interest. That's a great choice. Um, I'd be curious to see how that gets pulled off. Mm -hmm. It will be interesting. Uh, I'll do one that I'm pretty sure isn't on your list because I don't think you read After Lies by Abdurraza Gurna. Turns out not. good things are good, Rebecca Shinsky. <laughs> Tell me more about After Lives. Um, so it follows a couple of characters that are either related or, or closely linked over a generation and a half, I think, or so. Um, starting out in West Africa, getting swept up in German colonialism and wars. But it's really a tour. It's kind of a tour of, of Africa in this time. Um, it's told with sparing detail and, and burnishment um, and adornment. And it really builds and builds and builds. And my favorite last nine words of the year, to be very oh. specific, um, it really sharpens and sharpens and speeds up in the last like 50 pages where it's gonna uses all of the all of the experience and all the time you've had with these people and all of their hardship and all of their pulling together and all of their victories um to give us a really moving weirdly flashback to a character we barely know and it kind of opens up the whole book in a way um never read anything like it i'm excited to have the whole gurna corpus back um but it is it's interesting when you when I talked about the three books in my mainstream literary fiction, all of those feel contemporary. To Paradise mm -hmm. feels like a 2022 title. So does Candy House, and so does um, Sea of Tranquility. Of these kind of like spec fic, lit fic, up markets, whatever you want to call this, you know, um, the genrefication of art writing in America. 
Afterlives feels like it could be written 100 years ago, and in 100 years, it will not feel um, out of place. It's like mm. what um, I think Woody Guthrie said about folk music. It never feels of time, but it never feels out of time. And I think that's one thing that Afterlife and Gurna is really doing it. It's not quite myth mythic, but and it, it is historical fiction, but it doesn't feel that way. And it, feel, it feels timeless. That's the only way I can really think about it. And it's also not a, it's not a period of time and, and places I know a whole lot about. So there's like, oh, my God. It <laughs> turns out colonialism in Africa is bad, Rebecca. Did you know yes, that? Yes, I've really, heard. Really I've heard some things. It looks like. Um, but it's also not, it of course, is about that. But it's not just about that. Like, that's the world they're in. And I've thought about the title um, mm. a lot. And I'm still not sure what it means, honestly. And it's it's evocative without being descriptive, which you know my brain likes to work on. Uh-huh. Um, but it's it's really it's really good. It's really something else. And there's no hurry to get to it. Um, it doesn't matter that it came out this year. Mm. Uh, and it made some best of lists, um, rightly so. But it almost feels like this book making a best of 22 list feels like too small, weirdly. Oh, interesting. Me. Anyway, there, there we go. After Lies, Adlerazek Gurna. All right. I guess I'll stay in the memoir zone that mm. I'm still coming out of. I, I do think this is going to be a shared favorite. And it's maybe the book I am the happiest I had in one of my drafts this year. Ah. Uh, Stay True by Hua yep. Xun. I have it too. <laughs> Made the New York Times list. Big up. Yeah. Really glad to see that. We had a good year of memoirs by New Yorker Did any, writers. Did the other ones make it, by the way? No. Okay. I thought about in the early times. I included in the early times. But okay. I'm sorry, Schultz. I love yeah. that book, but didn't didn't quite make it. I didn't couldn't do quite. all three. I needed two. And go ahead. And I'm stealing I think spot. Schultz might have made it if it hadn't been competing with <laughs> right. Wash You and Dad Friend yeah, 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 <laughs> uh, yeah. for that Memoirs by New Yorkers, New Yorker writers situation. But just such a gorgeous snapshot of a friendship at that time where you're a freshman in college and you're figuring out who you are in the world alongside these other people who are figuring out who they are in the world. It has a little bit of the perks of being a wallflower fa- like flavor, uh, just a little bit of, mm-hmm. you know, being in the car with your friends and the music turned up loud and people are kind of razzing each other and the windows are down and the vibes are good and you just are like in this space with these people yeah. that you love. That Listening you didn't... to a CD and going to buy a zine. Yes. Yeah. And just, he captured that so well. And it, I think it's very much of its time, like what it felt yeah. like to be a young person at that particular moment in culture. But also I think it will age well. That the, the music on the stereo will be different. They're not going to pick up CDs now. You know, people who are going to write memoirs about having been in college in 2022, like 20 years from now, Mm -hmm. those stories are going to look, the details will be different. But the feeling of being that age, I think, is pretty consistent. And he just captures it beautifully and like the depth and meaning of that friendship and what it meant to him at that point in his life. Um, I read the end of it on a plane and I think oh, had to text you like, oh God, I didn't know it was going to make me cry <laughs> at the end. We're going to have to develop some system where when you get to a book first, you just tell me, don't read this one yeah. in public. Snot bomb. Do we have a don't snot bomb finish. emoji? I don't we know need, we, we do. We need a yeah. snot bomb emoji for like, we don't do. don't read that on an airplane, Shinsky. Um, this happens to me too often where like... The book is great, and then something at the in the middle or the end of it surprises me, and there I am crying in my aisle seat. Um, but I just I really loved it, um, and I was just drawn to it. I remembered putting it on my draft list of just like this just sounds great. Like yeah. he's a New Yorker writer, I like his voice. This sounds like a, an interesting memoir. But you know, it's his first book, and so it was that's, kind of a flyer. That, that's a flyer. That's a wonderful. You you bought um, Hanson energy drinks in '91, which had a little thing called Red Bull, <laughs> right? <laughs> right, and you're like, wow, that really took off. Good job, you. Yeah, it's fantastic. And I also I had in the early times by Tad Friend on my mm-hmm. list as well. I, I I listened to them back to back, and I couldn't separate them because they were right mm-hmm. there. And I was like, New York New York writers are the best thing ever. I don't want to read. I don't want to listen to anything else in the history of the world. I, I, and I couldn't separate them. And both of them were new to me writers, and I was surprised in different way. Mm-hmm. If um, Stay True needed the snot bomb emoji, the, in the early times needed the eyes emoji. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you did a nice job of telling me, like, just get ready. 
Yes. <laughs> and it was still very surprising. And in, in also on a sentence level, mm. spectacular. Yep. Some of my favorite sentences of the year happens in the early times with eyes emoji, fathers and sons, which I'm very attuned to um, for reasons that are because I am a son and I have a father and that's how things go. Not that it's anything like this, but the dynamic I always find interesting. And it was a surprise. Like I, you know, I had this on my, on my early watch list for some reason. Um, I didn't pick it because who knows? And I don't know this writer particularly well. Stunning, a stunning book. Mm-hmm. Both of them stunning back to back. The only reason, and then I was trying to think about why am I not including Lost and Found? They do go together in a lot of ways. I think for me, Schultz was trying to abstract from specificity in Lost mm-hmm. and Found of her own experience, where both of these books aren't about anything other than the stories and their own experiences. And in that way, they become transcendent by not trying to make it about, well, let's use a Herman Melville quote that I can apply to my father that's something about losing. It's like, it felt like that's a little too much. If you have a, she had good, just tell the story, tell it plain, tell it with heart and emotion and art um, and pathos. And I don't need the, I, I don't need that. You know, this reminds me of the Iliad and that's me. That's me saying this. <laughs> I know. I had the same response in in thinking about what made, especially Stay True, feel mm-hmm. so special. And it is that the specificity that grounds something that is universal. And Catherine Schultz, like, nothing is more universal than loss of a person that you love. We will all experience that. And she could have just told that story and it would have it would have done the work of right. this this is my personal story. You will see yourself in it in some way. Your Her father's a story. wonderful character, much like yeah. Chad Friend and, and, and Sue have wonderful characters at the center yes. of the stories. And it just didn't need all of that. And I think I, I wondered as I was reading it and then as we talked about it, I think we wondered together, like, is all of this other stuff around it just Schultz's way of distancing herself mm. from the difficulty of the material? Or is she trying to build some bigger structure for us to use to think about loss and grief because I, I didn't think we needed the I, you don't need a, a framework for no. going into a, a conversation like that or a story like that we all have that experience and just listening to another person tell their version of the experience I, I think is where the magic is and that's what was so potent to me about stay true yeah and again I like lost and found oh yeah I, I really did it's just I'm, I'm now seeing if it's on my 14 headed Mount Rushmore and it didn't, <laughs> it didn't quite uh make it there so i kind of piggybacked off stay true to get in the early Mm -hmm. times on there um what do you have left i have a couple debut novels and so one of my fave debut novels this year was memphis by tara m stringfellow um just i love a gang gets back together kind of story and this is not a light-hearted one the framework is a, a woman leaving an abusive marriage um going into a home where one of the other kids in the home has assaulted one of her children it's complicated there are generations there's generational stuff going on in this family but it felt vibrant and vibrant and rich the world Mm. that she creates i found it to be just a really strong debut probably not like if you just said to me what are the best like literary novels of the year i don't know that it's on my top list of those but i think it's among the strongest debuts of the year and it made me really look forward to what she'll do next and then i'm just gonna set you up here because my other debut (laughs) my other favorite debut of the year was post-traumatic but you get the prize for finding that this was my favorite debut i think it's the only debut fiction yeah um i don't know why i picked this up there's a bunch of books i think frankly this is one of the few books I can remember where the cover did something for me uh, mm. at the beginning. It has, I think I, we talked about it on the show, or I mentioned it, I, I can't remember the various conversations we've had over, especially in the middle of the year, but it has a cover you don't see very much on literary fiction, which is a photograph of an actual person. Mm-hmm. And I think that's telling here, because Chantal Johnson, who's the writer, she herself has some experience in the world of the main character, especially in dealing with social services. Um, she's a black woman. I don't know. I haven't read. I'm sure there's a there's an interview without here that tells her how much of this particular character story is in it. I don't particularly care. I'd be interested, but I don't Mm-mm. care if that if that distinction makes sense. Um, but it's a story of a woman who has trauma in her own life and who is flawed 
and who is chaotic and who is dealing with it. And she also knows all of that about herself. I think that's where the magic mm-hmm. really happens here. Is she has thoughts and observations about the world around her internally. And then she already has the, but I shouldn't think that, I shouldn't do that, that's not fair. But I'm thinking that anyway and how, I mean, I think that's something that's not talked about enough, really, that that mm. internal back and forth and rip, uh, sort of our psychological riptides that happen within our own oceans of self that's what I think literary fiction especially can do that almost no other art form can, is to give us a portrait of interiority. And this has exteriority. She makes some decisions that are tough. Yeah. Um, and the ending is interesting, and I'm still thinking about the ending. I'm not even sure I particularly care for the ending, but it does <laughs> the thing that I think I want a literary ending to do. is like It makes me reconsider the book, and it reengages mm-hmm. and gives me a different perspective. Um. I, I could imagine that this is, I hope she writes more, but I could imagine like this is the book she had in her. Mm-hmm. Like it kind of feels that way, like almost a catcher in the rye kind of way. I think I described it as a feeling having a modern day catcher in the rye. Not that they're anywhere related um, in terms of content, but it's a character wrestling with the world who's kind of messed up and it feels so human. And I love this book. I, I really, this is my biggest wonderful surprise of the year to me, post-traumatic by Chantal Johnson. I just totally agree. I second all of those emotions. It does the best job I've ever seen a novel do of what it really feels like to be a person living in a person's head. Yes. Right. <laughs> of, of what that is to like to have a feeling, to notice the feeling you're having, to have a weird thought and then have a thought about that thought. And, and then- it doesn't work, right? Like we yeah. talked about like the trick, like the 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 therapy sort of humanities trick is like, well, if you just know this about yourself, then you can master yourself. No. Ain't that easy, Rebecca? No. Yeah. yeah. And you and she just puts it all on the page of like, there's the feeling, there's the thought, there's the judgment of myself of having <laughs> right. had that thought. There's the, okay, let's try to have this other feeling about it. Wait, that's mm. not working. <laughs> Here's my judgment about this person I'm dealing with. I don't want to feel that way about them. Can I try to feel a different way? It's just so, you use the word human, and I think she just captures it so well. It's also really brave, a really yes. brave way to write yes. a story. And we don't know, as you were saying, I have avoided interviews. Like maybe somewhere she's talking about how much of this is from her and how much of it is fiction. I don't want to know. Yeah, I don't want um, to know either. I don't need to know. But she's done such a masterful job of just capturing that. And it's so brave to take that leap where not a lot, like literary fiction often, I think, relies on distance and often relies on a little framework or uh, on like a a one sentence nugget that is supposed to let you know a bigger thing about what a character's experience is like. And it's just bold to put us right in the head of someone in such a deep way for what, 300 pages of, okay, no, really this is what it's like to be this person. And it. this is the novel this year that more than anything else I read really left me feeling like, yes, I understand because this person just told me what it is really like to be them in the world right mm-hmm. now. It was just wonderful. I'm down to my last two, but before we get there, uh, let's do our, our uh, other sponsor break quickly. Today's episode is brought to you by William Morrow. I'll be dead in three months. Come tell my story. Imagine someone told you that. That's what Sebastian Trapp, a reclusive mystery novelist, told to his longtime correspondent, Nikki Hunter, an expert in detective fiction. So with only a few months left to live, Trapp invites Nikki to his spectacular San Francisco mansion to help draft his life story, living alongside his beautiful second wife, Diana, his wayward nephew, Freddie, and his protective daughter, Madeline. But soon, Nikki finds herself caught in an irresistible case of real-life detective fever. Make sure to pick up End of Story by New York Times bestselling author A.J. Finn for a book that gives Knives Out, that gives White Lotus. You'll like this if you like books by Lucy Foley, Nita Prose, and others. So make sure to pick it up, check it out. And thanks again to William Morrow for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by National Geographic Books. 
The Cave is the incredible memoir of Imani Balur, a young doctor and activist who ran an underground hospital in Damascus, humanizing the enduring crisis in Syria. The only woman to have ever run a wartime hospital in Syria, she saved many from the atrocities of war while having to face the patriarchal conservatism around her. Amani Balor is a game changer. Listen, she will be remembered as one of history's greatest. She's a passionately committed humanitarian, and she is determined to help others escape the horrors that she survived. Make sure to pick up the memoir, The Cave by Amani Balor and Rania Abuzaid for a memoir that expands on the 2019 Oscar nominated film by the same name, which documents her experience running the hospital, shielding children from horrific sarin attack, losing colleagues, trying to employ more women in the hospital, and eventually leaving and becoming a refugee. So make sure to read about this amazing woman. And thanks again to National Geographic Books for sponsoring this episode. Okay, Rebecca, what do you have left? Let's see. I have sleeper hit of the year that is a sleeper hit, maybe only in my heart. All right. Go. <laughs> but The Swimmers by Julia Tsuka. That was my last cut, and I did not like it about myself. Um, yeah, okay, you go. It, it's just quiet yeah. and strange, yeah. and I had some sentences that I loved, and was my first Juliet Suka, but now I have the Buddha in the attic sitting on my desk yeah, for next do. week. Um, so I loved the introduction to her voice. It, I really just love it when a writer is like, let's go into this weird thing that's happening. Mm. You know, there's a crack in the bottom of the swimming pool. Is it sinister? Is it just a crack? Why are all of the people freaking out? Will we ever know? Probably not. (laughs) And it's one of those, I don't know, I think I often love a novel where I find myself being like, there's no way I can explain to you what this book is about. You know, when I was, I always know that that's a good sign. Like Bob and I are having dinner and I'm telling him about what I'm reading and, or he's asking, you know, and I'm like, well... I'm gonna you I'm just gonna have to tell you everything that happens in this book and you're still not going to know what the book is about. So let's just not you can read it if you want. It's gonna be like a manic episode when I describe this book to you. <laughs> right. But that's I know that I know it's, that. Right. It sounds like the description of it sounds like when you wake up from a really weird dream and you make your partner suffer through listening to the story of your really yeah, weird definitely. dream. Like none of it is the kind of plot you would suggest. <laughs> for a novel it's very strange and very quiet and nothing happens but it's a vibe and i really liked the vibe i like the vibe too yeah i think uh the only reason it didn't make it further is that it was competing with liberation day for my is this a short story collection Mm -hmm. or what is this and i think the the swimming pool is that called the swimmers that novella and i don't remember is that called the swimmers yeah you can imagine George Saunders having a similar conceit and doing really weird stuff with it. But I almost like that Otsuka doesn't. Like, she's just like, it's just a crack in the bottom of the pool that people start freaking out about. Mm-hmm. Um, Aren't which people is really, weird? Is really, it's a little more on the Kafka-esque side in that regard. Um, but Liberation Day, which did, yeah. Saunders just swings and swings, and there's just so much, and it's so interesting and fascinating, oscillates. We did a whole episode about it on Patreon. You go listen to mm-hmm. it. Between very grounded at one level and extremely not at the other level. And when it came right down to it, I had them both sort of at the end of my list. And it's just the sheer ambition of Saunders. That's that's mm-hmm. what that's what went out for me. No shots on, to yeah. Atsuka, but that it's just the 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 amount, the volume of creation in Liberation Day is really <laughs> stunning. Yeah, that's on my list also. I don't even know where to put it on the list because no, Saunders has such range yeah. that it's just remarkable. He's so consistent and also just so expansive. And to be consistently expansive is really what else do you want? There's really impressive. Else. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing else. It's wonderful. He's wonderful. Um, that was just a big one on my list. And and definitely proximity is benefiting it because we just yeah, read that. So I'm still really, really thinking about it. Um, a couple like that I was going to sneak in at the end that yeah. I really had fun reading. I don't know how much I'm going to think about either of them in the future, but I really had fun this year with Flying Solo by Linda I Holmes. I had fun with that too. Just That's my happy, uh, if my happiest while reading it. Yeah. That's on my five. Yeah, and uh, now is not the time to panic by Kevin Wilson, which just came out. Which like this is I don't know 
that there's a more straight shot to the center of the Shinsky wheelhouse than a story about two teenagers in the 90s who create a weird piece of art that accidentally sets off a satanic panic in their town and that like 30 years later they're still living with. It it just rang like every bell I've got. Only if it were called counting crones would it be more in your wheelhouse. <laughs> yeah. Just rang all my bells. It felt kind of similar to some of the stuff that the Yellow Jackets TV show was trying to do with like looking at what was happening at that time in pop culture. And Kevin Wilson, just also talk about consistent. Like he's so consistent at what he does. Every book is its own vibe. It's going to be a little zany. It's going to be a little weird, but also very, very human and some real zingers of like his characters observe things about their lives in one sentence that would have most of us in therapy for decades <laughs> that's funny i'm yeah. looking forward to that it's I, a good kinda, one i've been looking forward to having that over break time which yeah I, that's a good holiday break read so that hits all of the ones i had is there anything lingering i've got for one you? more and it's it's not last. It's just kind of how the cookie crumbled. And I, I think you're in the middle of this, maybe, or just finished this Solito by Javier Zamora. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a poet, and it's his memoir of crossing from, I think he starts out in Ecuador, um, to the U.S., a harrowing story, um, the kind of book I've been hoping to read for a while, Um and I think the thing that so strikes me about it is he – one thing that poets are good at, especially – they're good at language for sure, but also restraint because mm-hmm. generally the poem itself is a, a limited space. You don't have a, you know, sort of a, a book-length container. And it's not so much that there's textual constraint here, but his restraint of judgment or politicizing – Certainly could, and it would be warranted, yeah. but I think it actually becomes a strength. It's like, this is just what happened. And if you don't think it's inhuman, I don't know what to tell you. Mm-hmm. Um, and all th- there's flawed people in it on all sides, I should say. There is good intention on many sides, um, but it is the kind of story that's both both you know this is what it is. I mean, that's the thing that really got me. It's like, of course this is what it's like. I kind of know this. And it happens every day. And people are doing it all the time. And I don't know what to do about it. And I'm, the book isn't even really asking that. It's not mm-hmm. really a call to action kind of a book. It is, this is my story. And that simple, the simple profundity of that, I think, has a, a pure power that is different than any kind of pontification or grandiose statement. It, you know, one kid, one nine-year-old, asked, told, made by his parents mm-hmm. to do a crossing, the found family along the way, the sacrifice and fellow feeling, the danger, the inhumanity, and the beauty of transcendence of what happens. It's just remarkable. And again, if you're interested in this, I, I do, and you're an audiobook person, Zamora is a wonderful narrator. He does stuff with language and his own in the Spanish that's involved. And there's piece of it that you don't know what the characters are saying to each other because he gives it to him in Spanish and there is no translation in the audiobook. I'm not sure if in the print book, if there would be an asterisk, I don't even know. I, I think I prefer it because um, it gives you that otherness as an English native speaker myself. I don't know their story. And there's a part of this that I can't know. And I'm experiencing it, but like on the very level of the line in those decisions about when we understand what the Spanish speaker is saying, when we're given access to that, when when it's withheld, I think is a fascinating microcosm of the whole experience Mm -hmm. here. So Salido by Javier Zamora. It's, um, the last one on my list. I'm really glad that you mentioned it when you were reading it or when when you were listening to it. I'm about a third of the way in mm-hmm. right now. Um, and I'm reading it in print. There are, there are not asterisks. There are not translations. Okay. So he yep. does the same real invitation. And I've been struck by that as well, that it's of any topic. It's certainly one he could pontificate yeah. about. And he ha- he would have every right to uh, from yeah, that experience. Yeah, it would be well within moral whatever um, to do. Yeah. But the, yeah, just the bare invitation to the reader to witness what he experienced and let that speak for itself does it does all the work and then some um i guess let me do myself a favor i'm getting on a plane this afternoon should i finish this book on a plane no okay well 
It's let's let it's, it doesn't without I don't want to do that without spoiling it. It doesn't go as bad as it could a story like this okay. in a lot of different ways. But I, this is not what I would pick. All right. Yeah. We'll keep it lighter. I'll finish yeah. it where yeah. I'm sitting down somewhere. Right. When you're sitting down somewhere. A um, good year. A really good year. Any other honorable mentions mm-hmm. or near misses? I gave you the swimmers. That that was down to my last cut. That was the one yeah. I really struggled with, to be honest. No, this is. I think I talked about everything that I'm really, really mm-hmm. glad to have read, but. I don't know. Maybe it's just we've been doing this long enough. And maybe it's that I'm pretty ruthless about putting something down if it's not working for me. Mm-hmm. But like, I had a really good hit rate this year. There wasn't much I read that I was like, looking back over my year that I wish I had spent that time with something else. Um, so I feel good about that. But I think this is just such a, a strong field yeah. of books and so varied for a year where there weren't there wasn't a big novel of the year in the literary space um there wasn't something like colleen hoover ruled the year but in like in the kinds of stuff that we read and are going to talk about there wasn't one big story and i kind of i like it in years where there's a big book or a couple like really big novels of the year but i also think i've come around to really liking the space that not having a big book created for a whole bunch of smaller really powerful experiences the freedom that the the space itself offers books, right? Is not like you don't have the problem. Well, not problem, but the condition of say TV or music or movies that there is the possibility for something to cross over to be a mainstream hit. It doesn't happen, it, or it does. It happens so rarely that it's not even a part of what you get into this for. But that's liberating in a way because you can read as idiosyncratically want and have a mm-hmm. wonderful year and not feel like you're necessarily missing out totally. on anything. Um, on the other hand, you could read the, I don't know, such as it is mainstream and had a good, I mean, I picked a lot, we picked a lot of mainstream mm-hmm. lit books, like, like the hipster Brooklyn picks are, there's a lot of them on here. Um, and you can have that experience as well, but you're never going to have the experience of like, you know, there is no succession and, uh, Game of Thrones, uh, oddly of books, <laughs> it just doesn't work <laughs> that way. Um, on the other hand, the range Books' range still crushes every other... Maybe music, I guess I should say. But mm. in movies and TV, it just takes so much money to make anything where you can write a weirdo book and get published by a weirdo press with just you and your pen and paper. Um, it may not sell any, but you can make that art and it can go out into the world and people can get to it. And I still find that to be mm-hmm. remarkable um, in its own way. I guess... Less if we had to pick. Well, we're going to get books of the year. I'm not going to step on that show <laughs> later. All right, Rebecca, thank you so much. We're going thank to take you. a quick break, and then we're going to record our Patreon episode that's going up next week, and that's going to be the books we missed in 2022, things we didn't read that we kind of wanted to, or thought we wanted to, or maybe we'll get to eventually. But for whatever reason, yet here as we sit on December 1st, um, didn't make it on our we read that list. So Rebecca, thank you as always. Go to uh, email us podcast at bookriot.com. You can check out the Patreon, patreon.com slash bookriotpodcast. Um, you'll see the list of the books um, and the show notes for this episode, which I'll live with all of the other show notes to all the rest of our podcasts, bookriot.com slash listen. Talk to you soon.